Hello and welcome to Quality Blether, the new podcast from the Scottish Testing Group, where you don't have to be Scottish or a tester to have a quality conversation about quality. In the following episodes, I'm going to be having conversations with some of the many and varied thinkers and doers within the IT industry. Our conversations will be as wide-reaching, varied and intellectually stimulating as the guests themselves. There will be differences of opinion and alternative points of view which we will explore in an amicable and curious manner, but always remaining friends. This is a safe environment in which any aspect of software quality is fair game for discussion. My guests will include QA directors, award-winning testers, authors, renowned quality gurus, researchers into the new technologies, agilists, futurists, thinkers, doers, old hands, and rising new stars. Today I'm talking to Simon Pryor, award-winning test manager, head of quality for EasyJet, founder of the Aylesbury Tested Gathering and the Testing Peers podcast, a man of seeming boundless energy, runner, father, husband, football fan. So, hello, Simon. Welcome to Quality Blether. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I have to say that when I thought of all the things that I wanted to talk about in uh, these episodes, you came up on the majority of them. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I'm honoured. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or bad thing that my reputation precedes me, but... Let's see how it goes. Well, you've got quite a reputation to live up to. It's, uh, <laughs> no pressure. Award-winning. <laughs> so do you want to um, just give me a little bit of your background? How on earth did you get to the point that you're at to today? Yeah, of course. Um, so I, it all started really, um, I graduated from the University of Hull in 2006 with a computer science degree. Was desperate not to go into software development at that point because... Um, I didn't think I was a very good software developer, um, uh, but university, that was the only real option I felt I had when I came out. Um, mm-hmm. So I ended up joining uh, McAfee, the antivirus company, as a graduate, did a graduate scheme for six months, uh, ended up being a C++ developer, which was the one coding language I didn't want to go into. Um, but yeah, I joined a very, very um, proficient team. There was, you know, developers all had 10, 15 years plus experience, so I was very junior. Um, never really got near the code, um, and within the first within three years, I was I was asking if I could join the QA team within that team, so I could work as part of it, but be on the other side of the fence as it was in those days. Um, so I joined QA in 2010. Um, very quickly learned how to write tests and how to write the Perl or Python scripts to automate the test straight away. Um, so it was very much a, a model of writing automation as we go, rather than leaving it till till later. Uh, and gradually worked my way up um, to QA lead and then QA manager within the organization as well. Um, I found the testing community in about 2015, and that opened my eyes to 
um, wow, the way we do it isn't the only way the testing can be done. There is other ways. There's better ways. There's more we could learn. Um, and cool. I started my own testing meetup at that point and, and got into listening to podcasts and going to conferences and stuff like that. Um, and then I decided that, well, in 2018, I felt that the culture in the company was changing. QA was taking more of a backseat. It wasn't as much focus on what we were doing. I felt it was important to move on. Um, I moved I moved to another company as a program test manager. Um, the, the company I joined wasn't, it was a very toxic environment. I It was out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. Um, and I, uh, I, although my, my mental health took a bit of a turn in that year, I decided that wasn't the right place to me. And I ended up joining EasyJet back in January, 2020, um, which, you know, in hindsight, <laughs> with, without knowing <laughs> what was coming in 2020, uh, not the best time to join an airline, but um, I stuck with it. I started off as the digital test manager, um, focused on the website and the mobile apps. And then in 2022, January, 2022, I became the head of QA, um, taking on all of EasyJet's testing responsibilities um across across our state from the mobile app the website the back-end systems the operational systems that keep the aircraft in the sky the corporate systems the the hr platforms everything else that's included um all became my scope of of, of qa and then later later in 2022 we became quality engineering and um, rather than quality assurance and that brings us to now really i'm still growing my dream team um and uh yeah we're having a lot of fun doing it well, there's an awful lot to unpack there. <laughs> so you were a tester by choice, but you didn't know that you had the choice of being a tester to start with. Yes, agreed. When I left university, I didn't know testing was an option. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's something that we should be pursuing more? We should be uh, pushing testing to the, the graduates? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And it's something I did try and start to do a few years ago. Uh, I had a hashtag, hashtag make a tester. Um, where I I got invited back to do a careers talk at my university. Um, and as soon as I said I was a QA manager, they backed off at a rate of 90 to say, oh, we don't teach QA, we don't teach testing. Um, would you like to do a special subject talk instead rather than a, a careers talk? And I was like, well, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Um, and that made me research the top 25 universities to find that only one did a testing module in their computer science degree course. Um, and then... With my podcast, The Testing Peers, that we run, I run sort of um, as a side project with three of my friends. We took on the project of asking every university in the UK what they do about testing. And out of the 70 we've spoken to, only 12 teach testing. So it's a very, very small amount of universities that actually teach testing or teach testing well, should I say. So, yes, it's definitely something we should give more choice to graduates on. Mm -hmm. In, in danger of going down a, a little rabbit hole. Yes, yeah. possibly. Yeah, Sorry. <laughs> training of, of testers is something that I'm particularly interested in. Um, and it's one of my hot topics, to say the least. Um, so how do they actually train testers? Are we talking about just the, the technical techniques of testing? Or are we actually talking about the mindset and everything I, around that? I think that? that's part of the challenge. I think the challenge is um, that testing isn't necessarily all about the technical skills. It's about the mindset, the curiosity, the asking questions, the the critical thinking, which doesn't fit nicely into a computer science degree course. It's it's not technical skills, it's not coding languages, it's it's not database skills. So that's where the challenge lies. Um, so that's something that I think needs to be looked at on whether there's more scope to do a 
a wider testing course rather than just a module or two and you can include some of the psychology psychology of testing and all that kind of stuff in there and critical thinking and you know plenty of decent decent um resources to 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 lean upon like thinking fast and slow and stuff like that that we could start thinking about critical thinking and etc etc so yeah i don't think we found the solution yet Mm -hmm. definitely so moving on from that you went from being a sort of developer into managing the test teams so was that a big step for you was that shock to the system or was that just a natural progression I think, for you? I think I was I was in the place where um and I've not freely admitted this I never felt I was the best tester I enjoyed testing but I'm sure there was always more I could do um I was I was very I was always told I was much I was a people person and you know I was I was always the first person to be asked to be scrum master and and in the teams when we were starting to do agile and I I loved testing but I knew there were more technical people that were better at the automation um, there were some people that just had the, that 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 knack for asking the right questions at the right point, and I could see how you could form a team with all the right skill sets in. And I think it kind of put me in a place where I was the natural person to pick up running the team and, and building the right skills within the group, and still contributing as a tester as well. When I become a QA lead, I was still still actively testing, um, but it was. It, it felt like a natural progression for me. And I always had a desire to go into management and lead a team. Um, I felt I could, I felt I enjoyed helping people grow. That was something I, I learned very quickly that uh, I could help someone grow. I started off with the, the junior testers coming into the team. I was always the one that they sh- shadowed and I could give them the skills. I could teach them the the, the right mindsets and get them going. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt like a natural progression to me. Right. So did you lose out on anything else that you enjoyed to become that manager or um, did you get the best of both worlds? Or uh, Well, the actual move into having the title manager was a bit of a baptism of fire. Um, and I've talked about this previously in some of my conference talks where I went from being a technical lead to being a people manager of two teams, one in the UK, one in Ireland overnight. And I had to literally take on the people management of of the team that was quite established in the UK and build a whole new team in Ireland. So I was straight into the, let's start hiring graduates. Let's start building the right, the right makeup of that team out. So I went from being very hands-on and having to know the systems inside out to not getting a chance to look at it at all and having to deal with people's requests to take leave and et cetera, et cetera, from, you know, very quickly. So it was a bit of a shock system in how it happened. And I, I always look back at that. I wasn't ever given that real, how to be a manager training um it just kind of organically happened and i i i sort of learned from 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 the process and i had a very good mentor and my manager at the time um who helped me learn the basics and always sort of talked about putting people over process and, and 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 getting your team on board and getting your team up to speed and caring about the people and then everything else will fall into place and 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 that worked well for me in that period do you feel that's influenced you in the way that you manage and you've become a leader in the way that you behave generally yeah i think so i think it has um i always remember one piece of um a director at the time before i left um the the, the antivirus company was she made they made a comment to me of um you know you might as well put a, a therapy couch in your office people are always coming in to talk to you 
And she said she said it in a derogatory way, like, you know, you need to stop caring about people. But I took it as a positive that people obviously yeah. felt comfortable talking to me. Um, and and that's always been my mantra of I need to be someone that the door is always open to to, to care for my team. And 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 that certainly has been a, a, a mantra for me going forward that my people come first. I have to make mm-hmm. sure that they have everything they need. And, and I must admit, that sounds so familiar. <laughs> Good. So it sounds like you've been used to team building right from the start, almost from that baptism of fire straight into having to build a performant team. Yes, I think so. It has definitely been been a common common thread through everything I've done. Um, and I could even take it back earlier than becoming a manager. I was in the the air training corps, the air cadets, when I was a teenager. And um, I ended up being flight sergeant. And I remember having to select my squad to do different you know drills and whatever else i always made sure i had the right skill set mix even at that point and i think some of those skills that i learned then have transferred into making sure i've got the right mix of skill sets across the teams um and you, you know adding the whole diversity piece as well you don't want a team of a team of views you want a mix of people that have different views different opinions different skills and together as collectively you can cover the broad spectrum of everything that needs to be covered so it's been something i've tried to keep going throughout my career mm-hmm. the diversity thing is something i'd like to come back to a little later absolutely <laughs> it sort of leads into your leadership and what you're doing at the moment which is the quality engineering transformation of easyjet yes um, no small task to say the least it's huge so to start off with what's your definition of quality engineering what are you trying to achieve there um for me quality engineering is it's about testing and all test it's it's not just about testing for me quality engineering includes all elements of um quality of the systems that we're looking at whether that be automation test environments architecture testing practices they're all come under quality engineering but for me quality engineering is the continuous testing throughout the life cycle so it's the continuous quality sorry not continuous testing that view of continuous quality throughout the life cycle so it's being involved from the very start and being involved all the way through having technical people that can write automation where needed that we've got the right environment set up we've got the right test data in place we're looking at quality from the very get-go and we're following it all the way through into production to the point of observability and monitoring, et cetera, in, in production as well. So that's the overall aspiration to be on that continuous um, loop that we're involved in every step along the way. Mm-hmm. We're making progress in certain areas more than others and, you know, different elements of the, of the cycle are in place. Um, but it's for me, the biggest, biggest change in mindset is getting us involved early. And especially in an organization like EasyJet, where there is a very diverse mix of projects that are in a very agile way of working, projects that are in a very old school waterfall way of working, um, projects that are developed in-house, ones that are third-party systems that are integrated in, trying to have a standardized view of where testing fits, where quality fits is quite a challenge. And it's been down to the, the way we're building the team and how we're pushing them in to be passionate advocates for quality that's helping break that mold and change the way we're we're perceived. Mm-hmm. Considering the uh, original research on performant teams, uh, basically laid out a whole layer of 
principles that virtually immediately transformed into the Agile manifesto and principles. Do you think that Agile is a an essential part of that quality engineering necessity, or is it something that is an optional? I think I think um, the term Agile is quite loaded nowadays. I think agility, definitely, with a small a, is definitely something we need to have in place. We need to be able to adapt to whatever the process is that we're following. We need to have the right practices that can be rolled out regardless of the methodology we're following. Um, things like testability reviews, testability assessments. If you've got user stories, you you do it against the user stories. If you've got requirements documents, you do it against the requirements documents. You, we basically have to mold our processes to be um, agnostic to the to the methodologies we're working with. So I think the ability to adapt and to have the mindset um, needs to be in place regardless of the process that you're following. What have you found to be the the biggest obstacles to to this transformation towards quality engineering? Um, I'd say the biggest challenge was bringing on the business on the journey and getting that buy-in to be involved as early as possible particularly around um, PMs possibly challenging the, the the cost of having testing involved from the start rather than testing just being involved at the end. That was a big shift, and it's about then taking on the ability to show them the value. And if you add us in earlier, we won't need four weeks for regression at the end because we'll have done the testing side by side with the development or the we'll have everything in place before we get to that point. We won't have found defects at the last stage. Um, and it's very much it's a bit of a cliche, but it's very much rolling out those old graphs that say the cost of a defect and all that kind of thing to show, you know, if you get us involved earlier, this is what will happen rather than us having that big tail because we found 50 defects in that regression cycle that then need to be reworked and refixed and, and retested. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the mindset. It was definitely the mindset. And, and, you know, I found it relatively straightforward to bring the right people in to help me from a testing perspective particularly the the leadership level that have then been the voices within the organization. Um, but once you've got those, you know, energizer bunnies that are, are running around mm -hmm. underneath you to yep. do all the work, that makes it very easy to then have the big, the big voice and, and to share the message wider. But yeah, getting the, getting the business on board was a big challenge. Mm -hmm. It sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> sounds just like a presentation I was giving this morning. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. I found some, uh, stats recently um, in a couple of papers that said 55% of all defects found on a project were introduced at the requirement stage mm -hmm. and that 27% were introduced at the design stage yeah. and only 7% at code. And yet testing is focused on code. Yes, and that's part of the reason why I've pushed for the testability assessment to be such a big part. And by testability assessment, that really is, um, for us, it's articulating each requirement. We need to be able to identify a test scenario. If we can't identify a, a single test scenario based on the requirement, then the requirement is either ambiguous or it's missing some detail or it needs rewording. And we go back to the BA in the business and say, you know, we, we can't work out how we're going to test this. Can you can you help us reframe it and 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 working with the ba and the business to to shape things in a way that we understand means we've got a heads up on how to test things very early on 
we've made the requirements less ambiguous, which means development or whoever's writing the code, whether that be an internal team or a, a third party solution provider, they know what they're, they're a lot clearer on what they what they have to deliver. Everyone's on the same page earlier. We've got less questions later on. We're finding less defects later on because we've helped do that earlier. Um, and the value has been proven uh, in a couple of the projects we've done. Uh, the, the test cycles at the end have been almost seamless because we've 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 done a lot of the work up front. So yeah, it has made a difference. Would you say collecting those matrix and metrics and measurements to actually prove that is is a key part of Absolutely. what you have to do? Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's very easy to say, oh well, it made a difference. But if you're not collecting the data to show that, then it's 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 difficult because you you never have two projects that are exactly the same. You never have two projects with the exact same people on it or the exact same teams developing it. You can't run them in parallel and say, right, well that team's going to do it in version A, this team's going to do version B. We're going to run one with testing at the end only. We're going to run one with testability assessments from day one and see what the difference is. It's very difficult to do that direct comparison, but as much as we can, we've tried to compare similar projects and show the difference. Mm -hmm. So you managed to bring the, the business on board with it by basically demonstrating there was going to be a cost saving. Mm. Uh, I think there's a quote that says um, cost is more important than quality, but quality is the best way of reducing cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a convincer for the business. And you managed to convince the project managers, but how about your suppliers? How about the people that you've actually got in there that's doing the work, the third parties? That's yeah. That's an interesting point. Interesting question. I think we've, try to bring them on the journey um by including them as much as possible you know bringing them in as being part of our teams effectively um and working with them um sharing our strategy with them so that they can they can get a, a sense of it as well um making sure they're part of our testing community so our you know internal events and stuff that we do try and bring everyone on that journey together and then slowly changing the mindsets on the pieces of work because the the the, the, the 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 work we've done with our suppliers a lot of them have been in the building for a long time so they've not changed the ways of working for a very long time and it's trying to now change that mindset and challenge that mindset can be difficult at times but it's if we've got the right people in the building and the right people supporting us around the edges of the suppliers as well that's that's helped us move forward um but yeah it has been a challenge especially with some of our more specialist roles like the test architects trying to find the, the the key key people that can can really help us make a difference across the organization um but you know we were on that journey mm -hmm. so you're part way down the journey you've, you've essentially started how far do you think you're down and what does the future hold it's a good question um i'd say we're you know probably a year into a three to five year journey to trans transform everything um there's a lot there's a lot to go at there's a lot to change um but i think you know we've got the right tools in place now to to start making those changes but we have to pick off small enough chunks we can definitely deliver them and um, rather than having big aspirations that we're going to automate all we need to automate by the end of next year it doesn't it doesn't make sense to try and do big bang things like that i think we have to go on the smaller scale where we can we know we can make a difference and then then build it up over time so i would say it's three to five years okay so 
would you say it's gone as you expected it or have there been surprises that have come along and you've gone, wow, I wasn't expecting that? Uh, I think there's been some positives. There's been some challenges as well um, that, you know, have held us back a bit. Um, I'd say the automation journey has not gone as gone as smoothly as I would like it to have gone. But on the flip side, we've got a lot of good buying in certain areas that's really helped us move forward and helped us transform certain areas. So it's it's kind of bit of bit of both really. It's some bits have slowed down, some bits have moved faster than expected. But mm-hmm. yeah, I can't complain too much. Were there any bits where you thought, oh, this is going to be a real slog to get anything in there, and then suddenly it just went? Yeah, there was a couple of bits, and I think it was down to the people and the way they sold the message the people within my group that, that were able to push that message through. So, yeah, I think there were a couple of bits, but it's, it's yeah, it's been a challenge in, in in the areas that are more agile have actually been more of a challenge to, to get any progress because um, I think they already were mature in some ways with how they were doing things. So trying to get change in was on the testing side was, 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 was a bit more difficult. Whereas the, more traditional teams or the teams that haven't really had testing involvement before have been a lot more receptive to starting in the new way, which has been a plus. Mm-hmm. So you'd say it's easier with startups than it is with long established, <laughs> we don't do it that way type if, teams. If you want to put it like that, yeah, I guess that would be the case. <laughs> okay. So you you mentioned your people as being key. How would you define your leadership style? How do you think they would define your leadership style? Um, I would like to say that they would say that it's very much a servant leadership style, um, that I do all I can to support them. I, I'm not someone that's going in every day going, guys, I need you all to do this and this and this, and I need it done by today. Um, I will try and check in with them as often as I can to check how things are going. If there's anything I need to help with, anything I need to escalate. Um, I always take time to get to know them as people and try and support them as best as possible. Um, so I would hope that they would see me as a people person as well. And that I've, I've, you know, I have their best interests at heart and I want to help them grow. And every, everything I'm trying to do is, is for their, their own growth and their own well-being, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be my hopes. I guess you'd have to ask them to see if that's, that's a reality. Have you ever had anyone that was more, just leave me alone. I just want to get my head down and be a techie and do my job. Yes, I have. And, um, you know, you have to adapt to the team people you have, especially if you've inherited per, uh, people people within to your team that you didn't really, you haven't selected yourself. Then sometimes you have to accept that not everyone's everyone's used to that way of management and way of leadership and, and they have their own ways of, of dealing with that. Um, so you have to find a way to, to work with those people. Um, I had in one of my previous roles, I had a particularly vocal shouty type person in my team that was, got very angry every time something went wrong or if someone found a bug in his code. Um, and over time, you know, I was able to talk to him and we built up a relationship where he wouldn't shout at me. If I found bugs in his code, he wouldn't shout at me. He'd come and sit with me and we go, okay, so what's the problem then? And I'll talk him through what I've found. And he'd go, wow, how did you find that? Um, rather than just screaming at his monitor and having to go out and walk in the car park for 10 minutes and calm down, 
it was a it was a I found a way to work with him and I've always done that with with my teams I've always felt I need to find a way through to the person to then build up a working relationship with them and that's that's how I've always tried to build grow my teams and also work with stakeholders etc as well where do you think that empathetic approach comes from where did you did did you learn that is it natural or is it um that's a really good question um i'm not sure to be honest i think it's probably something that i i've learned along the way uh whether it's from uh my upbringing or whether it's just uh you know i've had to i've i've had to learn how to be nice to people to to get the best out of them i guess and somewhere along the line it's uh yeah it just feels like it comes naturally but um i'm sure there was something that triggered it in the past mm-hmm. yeah i can relate to that <laughs> um so again on the people front you are a big diversity and inclusion advocate and especially yes. on neurodiversity do you want to Explain why that's important to you, why it's important to the company, and how come you're so vocal. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, neurodiversity is a big thing for me um, because I've 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 always grown up with having an autistic sister. Um, I've now got a an autistic son, um, and I am ninety five percent convinced that I'm autistic as well, although I've never been officially diagnosed. So it's something that I've, I've, you know, that empathy comes in again. I've, I've seen how people with neurodiverse conditions or neurodivergent conditions have been treated in companies in the past. I don't want that for my son. I want to build the best possible uh, working environment for him. Um, and I advocate for that at work. I've done talks within EasyJet. I've done talks outside of EasyJet about neurodiversity in the industry and how we need to know change our working practices our hiring practices our our onboarding processes to try and you know be supportive for everyone um not just the neurotypical world um and i think there is an appetite for that at the moment there seems to be a bit more of an appetite to open up the accessibility for all um agenda which which there wasn't a few years ago um i certainly remember in previous roles where um I would be on an interview board and I, as someone would come in and openly admit that they were autistic or they would, they were ADHD or something. And it would be a held against them. Oh, we can't hire them. Oh, they're ADHD. They'll, they'll never sit still. They'll never, they'll, they'll be distracting other people. Whereas actually nowadays, and I made a point of hiring someone when they, they were that open with me about being ADHD and they were clearly the best candidate for the role. And I said to them, look, you know, you don't have to worry. We will find the best way to, to make sure you feel supported. And actually, he turned out to be one of the best exploratory testers I've ever hired because he was able to multitask. He was able to focus on things and 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 really dive into things. Um, whereas, you know, maybe if you'd have tried to give him another area of testing to do, he wouldn't have been as successful. But we managed to find that exploratory testing was a an area that he was really, really good at. Um, so, you know, it, I think there's more acceptance that everybody's different. Everyone has their own challenges, their own needs that we need to find a way of supporting um and and like i say there seems to be that acceptance at the moment that it's something to consider and and move forward with Mm -hmm. i think it's quite common with uh, accessibility to think about the physical disabilities so thinking about uh, sight problems or hearing problems but 
or even wheelchairs. I mean, that's the the stereotypical. Uh, that thinking is almost as faulty as being neurotypically thinking. Absolutely. So how how do people need to modify the way they think in terms of neurodiversity? What sort of things can they do to to improve the environment? Well, I think, first of all, it's um, if someone's vocal about being neurodivergent, um, it's just asking that question or looking for ways to support. Um, what do you need? How can I help? Um, is there anything that will make things better for you? Um, might be things like they might have a real sensitivity to smells. So let's make sure that their desk where they're sitting is not near the kitchen or the canteen area or something like that, because that might be a trigger that causes anxiety. Um, it may be they need to have um, fidget toys to constantly have in their hands while they're working, which is something that thankfully EasyJet's been very supportive of me having around. But equally, they shouldn't have to be supportive. It should be something that's given that people are you know, allowed to have fidget toys if it helps them concentrate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, As opposed to breaking office equipment. Like yeah, like, like pens and, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's it's just finding ways to support. And, and the other key thing is one size doesn't fit all. Um, there's, a, there's a phrase that if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. You can't you can't assume that because you've met one person with autism that you've you know how they're all going to work because every single person with autism is different um, and the same with other neurodiverse conditions as well. Um, so you have to treat everyone as an individual and find out the way that helps them be their best selves. Um, and, and that's what, you know, as a, as a leader, I try to do that with my team anyway. It's not necessarily about what needs they have, but it's everyone has different circumstances that they need they need to have support for, whether that be flexibility because they have to do school pickups or whatever else. It's just finding ways to be accepting and, and warm towards them, whatever their situation is. <laughs> yeah, I have a belief personally that uh, there's no such thing as being totally neurotypical. We're all neurodiverse. We all have our own behaviours, our own likes, our own dislikes, our own triggers. So to treat one group as typical and one group as not seems wrong. I, I, yeah, I, I, I do, I do agree with you. There is certainly certain aspects of that. Um, although that is a is a, a view that sometimes people within the neurodiverse community will challenge. That, but I, I think there is there is different elements of that. That everyone is different everyone has their own needs whether it's whether it's marked as oh that's an autistic trait or whether that's a adhd trait or they're, they're showing signs of dyslexia that's not for us to comment on you know everyone has their own needs and their own traits and they just have to be allowed to be themselves mm-hmm. so you were uh, quite active on social media and one of the things you posted recently was your reading list Okay. What are the must-read books for testers? Just your top oh, three. I'm trying to think back to that post. Not the top uh, fifty. I know. I remember posting my leadership, my leadership books, the books for leadership that I was reading. Um, the top three books for testing. Um, I've probably got them all here. Actually, um, the top one would be Leading Quality um, by Ronald Cummings, John, and O.A.'s Peer. It's all about how to get quality at the table for conversation, which is a real, 
real must, especially when you're trying to build a quality organization. Uh, book number two would be Explore It by Elizabeth Hendrickson. Again, very mm-hmm. good book on exploratory testing yeah. and how to look at the mindsets. And the third one for me would be The Team Guide to Software Testability by Rob Meany and Ash Winter. Um, again, shows how to build testable software. So it's it's a real key one to to learn. So from a quality perspective, those would be my top three. Great. Um, and I'll, I'll put links to those in the, uh, the show notes at the bottom. Um, so one last question for you. Uh, what's the weirdest bug you have ever found? Oh, there's a question. Um, so the one that comes to mind is when I was working for um, McAfee, the antivirus company, was the bug around we managed to as we, we had a software change that accidentally deleted SVC host file on Windows XP, um, which bricked all Windows XP Service Pack 2 machines, which was a point where XP was still very prevalent. Um, so yes, that was possibly the biggest bug. The most mm-hmm. awkward, weirdest bug to find is, is you know, we're deleting service files um, and it's causing lots of people's computers to brick, um, which wasn't a good place to be. <laughs> Well, you're certainly showing your age with uh, Windows XP. Yes, indeed. I remember when that first came out, I was at university, <laughs> which which is maybe showing my age, maybe showing how young I am as well. <laughs> yes, I think probably is. So is there anything that I haven't asked about that you think I should have done? Um, no, not particularly. I, the only thing was a, uh, just a cheeky plug for my own podcast, um, The Testing Peers. So... We've been going for about three years now. We've done 70 episodes, I think, or just about. Um, sorry, 80 episodes, in fact. And we've got 35,000, 36,000 downloads now since we started. But it's basically on everything from testing and leadership. And we do an annual mental health episode, which is due to come out in May as well. So, we're, we're yeah, there's, there's lots of good stuff there. And we're branching out to look at, had our own conference and and doing sort of the university thing as well with partnering with a couple of universities to try and get testing on the agendas of the, the courses but yeah it's a it's a progress it's been a a friendship group that's grown into a podcast and 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 what have you so yeah it's been a good journey mm-hmm. yeah and a podcast well worth listening to i have oh, to say thank you <laughs> um i think we should probably also mention the um Ministry of Testing meetup that you've been running since forever? Yeah, so well, since 2015, um, was originally the Aylesby Tester Gathering, then it became Ministry of Testing Buckinghamshire. Um, it's taken a little bit of a hiatus for the last year or so since the pandemic, really, because we went completely virtual during the pandemic for obvious reasons, and we haven't got around to starting it in person again. Um, but the intention is there to to start it up again and do some in-person meetups in the, the Buckinghamshire area. Um, but worst case, we'll go back to online again because it did work quite well. We did have, you know, 100 plus attendees, most most events. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to doing something. And you mentioned conferences. You're actually talking at the BCS software 
um, interest group in software testing, aren't you? I am. Yes. Uh, yes. I'll be I'll be down in London in June, um, talking about the growing a culture of quality at EasyJet is my my talk. So yes, it's uh, it's one I've done a few times now, but uh, I've tried to evolve it. Each time I talk, I I do it. It's slightly different. So yeah, yeah I'm looking forward to that. It's a different audience to to be sharing that with. So that'll be good. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I won't be at that one because I'll be at Eurostar. But ah, uh, oh, they've they they yeah, the, the timings don't work for the two events. There, there should have been a bit of a calendar sync there, I think. But yeah, along with the Agile TD on the beach. Ah, okay. Lots going on the same week. Yeah, lots. Um, but hopefully they'll record it, so I'll get to see it anyway. Indeed. Yeah. So thank you very much for sharing your time, your insights with us. No problem. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. So thank you for listening. Check out the show notes for the links mentioned and join us next time for more quality conversations about quality on Quality Blether.